Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, your words are life to us. Your words are spirit and life. Lord, I pray that um, we would feed upon your word this morning, that we would hear from you. We would receive this life-giving power that you have in your words. And Lord, above all, Lord, I pray that the words that you teach us today about your flesh and your blood given for us, poured out for us, given to us in the sacrament, Lord, I pray that we would begin to really eat and drink of new and eternal life, unending life. We pray, Lord Jesus, for your glory that this be so. We pray it, that it would strengthen our witness to the reality of your divine presence to us, your forgiveness, the way that you want to change us so that the world would know that it is loved. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. John, his gospel is um, very specifically pointed towards showing the revelation of God in Christ. I mean, he wants to show that in Jesus we have not just a, a holy man, not just a prophet, not even a Messiah who is a king in an er earthly sense, but God become flesh, the word of God, the son of God become flesh and dwelling among us. So actually in the humanity that God meant for us to have, he's now coming into our midst in his flesh and his blood in our existence and showing us the divine reality of God. And it's an incredible thing. You can't even take that in. All the words that I just said, it sounds like gobbledygook when you say it and you actually analyze it because it's beyond our ability to fully appreciate it from an intellectual, strictly intellectual standpoint. If we try and do that, we're going to fail. But this is his project. He keeps on wanting to show us the revelation, the revelation of God in Jesus, that he is the I am of the Old Testament incarnate. He shows it to us in so many different ways, that he's the true word of God, the perfect image of God that Adam failed to be in the world, so that we could then be restored to that way of being and overcome our loneliness, our alienation, the sin that traps us. John wants to show us this Jesus because this is who he really is. He's already challenged a lot of our presuppositions about what's possible and our perceptions about what's possible in the gospel up to this point that we read today. He's changed, I'll just remind you a few things that he's done here to show that Jesus is divine. His first miracle, the first sign that pointed to the kingdom is that he changed water into wine. You, you can't do that. I mean, you, you need months to do that, right? I don't know how long the fermentation process takes. And, and plus, I mean, it's not just water. I mean, you gotta have grapes. You, gotta, you don't do that. This is uh, molecules and all kinds of processes are done instantly that just can't be done. That's a divine act. <laughs> he heals the official son from a distance. He heals the paralytic at a word at the pool in Bethesda. He multiplies bread and fish, and he walks on the water for the disciples. When these are the signs. These are deeds that show that Jesus is really God in the flesh, even though he's human. He's really human, too. John's emphatic about both. He's fully God, and he's fully man. That's a really good bit of news. It's an overwhelmingly good bit of news, even though it's hard for us to get our heads wrapped around it. 
But he's also begun to get clear in what he's saying about himself. Because when he comes to the disciples on the water, he says, be not afraid, I am. He's using emphatic words now. He's also starting to use them with the crowds and also these Judean men who are challenging him, who are stuck in their mental schemes about what God can and cannot do. And so, because to these disciples, he's now identifying himself as the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven, the living bread of life. This is way beyond water to wine, way beyond. He's actually changing what's possible for humanity from within his own divine humanity. He's changing what's possible for humanity. He's making it possible for us to receive him and be changed, to actually somehow eat and drink and metabolize him in such a way that we're changed and we actually know God the way that he knows the Father. He's making something impossible possible. Praise the Lord. And he's starting to do it by this unusual teaching about his body and his blood. He's actually making all things new and he's telegraphing how he will do it and how he'll want us to remember it. And this is good news. There's um, a few basic um, things that John uses when he tries to uh, help us grasp what Jesus is teaching. And I just want to go over this because we just pass over too quickly, right? Um, We've been around too long in the Christian tradition. And if you're just part of Western culture, even if you're not a believer, you know a lot of these things. And you're like, well, yes, the Christians remember and celebrate Jesus and they take bread and wine and they think it's his body and blood, you know, and everybody kind of knows that. And so we don't even think too much about the full import of what's actually being conveyed here. But it does relate to some very down-to-earth realities, but then transposes them up to some incredible divine realities. I mean, it's, it's playing in a, in a totally different scale at a higher level if we understand what Jesus is saying, but he's still speaking to us in a language we can understand at some level. Like he talks about bread being the bread of life, of eternal life. What's bread, like just from a a normal earthly standpoint? If you think about it, it's, um, it's sort of an energy source, right? And what is that energy source? It's dead wheat. I mean, it's wheat that's ground up into flour and then it's moistened Yeast is put in it, usually, not always, because you have matzo bread, and then it's fired up, and it's served as bread. And basically what we're doing is we're drawing life from a life source that has a remnant of living in it that's in the process of dying in order for us not to die. They're drawing some strength because we have, we have bodies and we are constantly losing strength, so we constantly need to be re-energized and we need sources of life to do that. But we're eating things that are dead. (laughs) Sounds a little bit disturbing when you say it that way, doesn't it? We're eating things that are dead to stave off our own dying. To me, it seems like it's actually a partial solution to a bigger problem. I think what Jesus is starting to allude to when he speaks of his own body as bread and eternal life-sourcing bread, he's saying this is bread that is so powerful in divine energy 
It's so rich in resurrection life that it can feed you and sustain you way beyond what we just read about Elijah. I mean, he went 40 days with angelic food, on that sustenance. So Jesus is saying, no, more than that, eternal life. But what is, let's think a little bit about life, too. I've already started to hint at this. Life is energy. It's the power to be and the power to do at a very basic level. That's what life is. The power to relate to one another through communication, an exercise of energy that takes air and reverberates it through our vocal cords and it makes a sound and it helps us to communicate and helps us, if we listen to it, to communicate with other people. And that is requiring energy, that's life. But once again, it's a fleeting energy that we have. We have life, but it's fleeting. And we're basically like vehicles that can run out of gas. And not only can we run out of gas, constantly having to refuel, eventually the car breaks down. And it's not going anywhere. Energy stops. And the possibility of energy stops. It's a real problem. So you think of the body. Dallas Willard, Jesus is talking about his body, his flesh, given for us being bread of life. But he's... Also, I think it is embedded in that, a little bit of teaching about the body itself and how he wants to transform our bodies so that it can be to participate in something that is far different, his resurrection body. But the body, Dallas Willard says, is a power pack for doing things. It's, like a, it's almost like a, uh, an organic battery, in a sense. It's a power pack for doing things, for moving stuff, for working, for worshiping, but it's also our only interface, the only means by which we can relate to anything, any kind of reality. That's our body. If you don't have a body, you can't talk. If you don't have a body, you can't hug and be hugged. It's how we give and receive life, but it's especially the body made in the image of God is meant for a divine kind of a communication. And Jesus is beginning to hint at that. He wants us to return to a divine form of communication in our bodies, in our physicality. And he wants to transform it. It's an incredible thing that he's doing, this new creation reality. But it's his body alone, his power pack alone, if you will, that is charged with a divine life and love that can make a way for us to feast upon it so that we actually do live forever. So we do live for eternity. And that's what he means when he says it's true bread, it's true wine. If you drink of this and eat of this, I will raise you up on the last day. So he's challenging some basic things we know about life, but he's also taking some basic things we know about life, and he's definitely transposing them way up into a much higher key. I think it's another way of saying that he really wants our earthly lives to matter and that our matter matters. We say this often as a sacramental church. He wants it to matter because it does matter. He came into this situation of our material lives with all of its possible problems, running out of steam, dying, being alone, not being able to communicate, not feeling like anybody cares. He's come into it into that very existence in order to turn it over and to give us a new life to metabolize that's good and unending. So we have a resistance to this. Like we have, we have a problem with it. I think, I don't want to pass over the fact that the Judeans here that are challenging him, they're not different from us. We always do that. I do it a lot myself. 
Like I would have done better, and that's a real self-deception. I probably would have done worse. If I'm going to be really honest, I probably would have been done worse because I actually wouldn't have been even doing as well as they did. That's the truth. Well, what, what's, what's their resistance? Well, they're demanding a sign. Okay, that's not so bad, is it? It's not a bad thing to demand a sign. They, they had heard and understood in their tradition that the coming Messiah would rain down manna from heaven. It would be like Moses. And so they want a miracle. Give us a miracle. Give us something undeniable. If you're going to say we have to believe that you're coming down from heaven and then giving your, we'll talk about the body thing in a second, your, your flesh to eat. I mean, if you're going to say that you're coming down from heaven, give us a sign, an undeniable source. How about a, a miracle that's undeniable? I think we do this a lot. We do it throughout our lives. And we're asking the Lord for something deniable according to our own lights. And um, is it going to make a difference, by the way, if we do that? I don't think so. It actually didn't make a difference for the Judeans there. And a lot of us have experienced miracles, right? How long does the benefits of that last? Just in and of itself. Unless we really allow it to be a sign, which means that it takes us from just remembering it as like a thought to being something that communicates us back with God in a living relationship. Jesus had, in fact, already done the sign, right? This whole episode here is actually after the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. So he'd already done the sign. So what's, what's happened here? I think um, I've, I, I speak about this in different ways when I teach, and um, it's really a, it's a kind of pride. We'll talk about pride a little more extensively in just a second. But in this particular case, what our Judean brothers have done here, and I do call them our brothers, because I really want us to own the fact that we're not much different. We do it perhaps in more modern ways. We do the same thing. What they've done is they t- they've taken the Torah, the law, the words of God given to Moses, and they've done, um, I'll use a big word for just a second. It's not a big word, but it's a word that we don't often use. They've kind of reified Torah. They've given it its own existence apart from God. They've made it a thing that could be somehow divided from God as if it was on its own enough that the words of Torah are enough. They are, to be sure, God-given words. But what's happened here is they've stopped experiencing them the way Moses did. How did Moses experience it? As words spoken directly to him from the mouth of God in the living, holy, fiery presence of God, a God who can cause a, a mountain to tremble and to cause his whole face to shine with really bright light, so much that he had to veil it. They, they, they've lost the original pathway that is meant to be Torah. I mean, Torah is meant to be part of a communication. Again, words that aren't just words that stand out there. They're meant to be words that actually we hear, and by hearing them, we're formed in a living relationship with God. They've forgotten that it's through these very scriptures that we can know God, that we can sense him, we can experience him, we can enjoy him. Just read Psalm 119, how David thinks of the Torah, the words. He understands its relationship. It's not just words like given to you to have a rule book and an operating manual for how to take care of things on your own. 
separated from God. We do this again and again. We, we do it. We've reduced the words of Scripture to an operating manual. And it's one of the reasons why we think it doesn't so matter if I share the Word of God with somebody because we think it's just information. Or that I hear the Word of God spoken through the body of Christ, through a real human being like me. I think I'm being human up here. It's not so important that I go and hear the words of God or that I sit at the feet of the apostles who are trying to embody and express and extend these words of life. They've forgotten. We forget that it's through these words that we actually have life and that it's through these actual scriptures that these are, that we encounter the living God, this unpredictable, ungovernable, this fearsome, holy creator. Man, wow. These words are meant to be a communication with the living God who loves us. You know, I, I remember um, Professor Weber, Robert Weber, who was one of the um, leaders in this movement, which has now become a worldwide movement in many respects of Anglicanism, a revived kind of Anglicanism, a revived Christianity, if you will, in the West. He used to talk about his father, who was a Baptist minister, who had such a reverence for the words of God and Holy Scripture, and he so understood them to be from the mouth of God and powerful that the books that had been reprinting them, that he had carried and used in his ministry, he would bury them in his backyard. <laughs> he, like, he, he would stand in the backyard and he'd say, well, this Bible has served its useful purpose, but he so cherished the words of God that he actually buried it. He wanted to honor the fact that these are the words of God. I think it's a little superstitious, right? It's like treating the Bible as if it was a holy sacrament, but I get what he's doing. He's realizing that there's something incredibly holy in these words of God, and um, we should not separate them from the holy God. I think, he's rec I think he's recognizing to a certain level, he's going too far, that the words of God and Holy Scripture themselves are sacramental. In other words, they convey a holy communication of the living God. They are immediately relational as long as we enter into it as if God really is speaking to us and loving us through them. But Jesus is actually going further than this, and this is a real problem. He's amping up the problem by becoming the Word made flesh. This is an even bigger problem, because if we can divide the words of God, Holy Scripture, from God the Father, then it's much easier even, and maybe it's because it's more disturbing to think of, well, let's divide Jesus himself, the speaker of the words, the Word made flesh, is in our midst, and we don't often want to receive him, and there's this same kind of splitting problem. We divide Jesus' humanity from his divinity, and that's what the Judeans, our brothers, the Judeans are doing here. So it's hard, it's hard, right? We had this same problem with Nicodemus early on. I mean, Nicodemus can't really get what Jesus is saying. You have to be born, like, born again. I have to go back to my mother's womb. Oh. No, no, no. You have to be born from above by the Spirit. And you have to be born of water and the Spirit. And now he's saying, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So he's getting really intense here. It's intense sacramental teaching. And for those of us who are really functional atheists, where we're like these Judeans, we reduce God to maybe a set of principles that can be abstracted away from God. Or if we think God is somehow irrelevant in any way to our earthly lives, 
If we're functional atheists, we have a hard time with what Jesus is teaching us. The sacraments are actually very difficult for us if that's where we're at. Um, If we continue in this path, we're at great risk. And I think it's because whenever God's revealing himself, whether it's in the words of scripture or through his ultimate manifestation in Jesus, there's an act of trust that's required. It's an act of personal trust. And I mean this, like even the moral law itself, if you think about the moral law of the holy scriptures that were given to Moses, um, it's an act of trust to do that, right? Like, Because I don't always want to obey the law that God gave to Moses. I don't love it the way David did, and David didn't always love it either. I mean, it's an act of trust to deny your impulse, right? You have to trust that things will be okay if I don't get what I want right away. There's a delay of gratification. That means you have to trust that in time, God will still take care of you. It's an act of trust not to immediately take care of ourselves and not to submit ourselves to something that's beyond ourselves. But this is a problem because we know, if we're parents, we know how much our kids hurt themselves when they don't do and learn the ways of delaying gratification. Like if they eat all the candy all at once, they get sick. But there is, it happens to us as adults, but we, we dismiss it. We don't realize it. We make ourselves sick. And ultimately, what we end up doing by not listening to God is we end up killing God, which is what happened to Jesus. And we kill him in our faith, in our failure to trust Jesus, our failure to trust his words. So what Jesus is saying is, look, you're made for love. You don't know this. You're made for love. You're made for communion with me. And if you're not going to commune with me, if you won't commune with my body and my blood, you're going to end up in death. You have no life in you apart from me, and you will have no life if you don't eat my body and my blood. And this happens again and again. It's a serious problem. But what Jesus is, is the only human being who's ever kept the words of God because he is the word of God. One of the things that John says about Jesus is he's full of grace and truth. With Moses, you had grace. All these words about how to live, but with Jesus, you have truth. And what he means by that is that Jesus is actually able in his humanity to keep these words, these impossible words for how to live. He's actually able to do it. He's the only one who could keep covenant with the Father in his humanity, the only one. So in his flesh and in his blood, he perfectly maintains communication with God. And every word that God says, he says. And every word that God commands, he does. He's the only one that ever did that. But we're meant to live in that kind of reality, but we can't live in that kind of reality. How can we come into this? And Jesus is beginning to minister uh, an answer to that question. So he makes it clear, first of all, that this is an act of God. This is a sovereign act of God. It is a, a ministry of God's sovereign grace. It requires our trust and our humility, and those two things coming together sounds hard to reconcile. And John does this. He does it again and again. God's in charge. God draws you. You will be taught of God. That's how it's going to happen. The Father draws you. You come to him. If the Father doesn't draw you, it ain't happening. At the same time, he's saying, just entrust yourself to, believe, to me. Just come to me. Believe. So he's saying, on the one hand, 
you're born of the will of God. But it's a loving will. He does, he makes it clear again and again. He wants everyone to come to him. It's a loving will. So you're taught of God, but they grumble. He's the son of Joseph of Nazareth. How can this be? Jesus doesn't get too worried about it, right? I'm, I'm teaching here, and I often feel like I'm trying to convince, and, and that's exactly what Jesus is not doing. He's not trying to convince people who are stuck in their own self-rule, ruling Jesus out of that self-rule. He's not trying to convince them. He's saying, I'm not worried about it. The Father's going to draw you. That's the only way it's going to happen. And in, as a matter of fact, Moses didn't feed you, by the way. God fed you, and they rebelled against him, too. So the really cool thing about this is that, ironically, Jesus is demonstrating he's actually the prophet who is like Moses because he's being rejected just like Moses was. And he's fulfilling the prophecy as a matter of fact. So to be taught of God, it means to receive the lesson from God. I mean, it means to actually be taught by him. It means that actually you put him in authority over you. It means that you actually say, well, I'm not master of my own destiny, but he is, and then you gratefully receive this above and beyond word that comes from outside of yourself. That's part of it. It's a position of humility. It's a position of listening. It's a position of coming to him, not knowing everything and knowing you don't know everything, and coming to him in a kind of reverence and awe, because this is God speaking. It's divine revelation. It should cause us to tremble. It should evoke our personal trust because he's God and he made us and he loves us, but it should cause us to tremble a bit too. The Lord is drawing us. It's his love that's wooing us so that all who would come will come and would know that they belong. And so we're called to come and believe and it's not really an anxious process. It's just rooted in his love. It calls for our response, but it's rooted and grounded in his love. So it's both a divine act and a human act. I don't know exactly how to resolve the two. John doesn't try to, but he is trying to say, don't worry about it. God loves you. Now come to him. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about how Jesus does it at a very high level. It's a little too abstract, isn't it? But coming to him as divine, well, I could maybe come to him as human, which is what the world often does, but how do we come to him as divine? He's actually the son of Joseph, right? He's born of Mary. And Jesus doesn't directly answer this either. He just says, and if, he basically offers us a divine hospitality. I'm not sure that that exactly overcomes the problem. In some ways, it makes it greater because... Jesus being human makes God more accessible, but there's a problem because he's human and therefore he can't be God. <laughs> but here's the answer. What he means by giving of his body and blood is that in that is a divine hospitality that's so intense, it so perfectly expresses the holiness of God and the love of God that it answers the problem in his body and blood, in his flesh and blood. It's so intense that it answers the problem of how can a holy God be given to us in human flesh and blood. It's in the self-offering of his perfect body who alone amongst everybody in humanity communicated faithfulness back to the Father. He's the only human that ever did that, and he's now saying, I'm giving you my body. I'm giving you this body that communes with the Father eternally so that you can commune with the Father now, forever. 
It's his body and blood, and he's getting really, really earthly at the same time. This is awesome, and yet it's down to earth. It's, it's going at our deepest hunger and thirst that we've forgotten about. Okay, so you come to a meal, you're hungry, you feel the urgency. It's like, I gotta have some food. I felt that way often in Israel. And then there'd be this great food laid out for me, all this Mediterranean food, and I would gobble it down and I would overeat. And I felt the deep hunger of my humanity at that moment. I don't often feel the hunger of my humanity at the level that Jesus is trying to address. These are needs that are so deep and so raw, and they're so spiritual, but we've somehow forgotten these primal needs. We actually have a hunger to consume the words of God and to consume in our bodies, in our life, a relationship with God that Jesus is giving to us. It's like our, you know how um, when, you're, when you've been starved for so long, I don't know if you know this, but you can't generate feelings of hunger pangs, apparently. And so actually one of the healing processes is just to start by trusting enough to eat. Somebody's telling you it's time to eat. This happens with people who suffer from that horrible and very tragic disease of anorexia. You have to trust somebody else enough to begin to want to eat so that you can begin to want to eat and you can begin to want to live. In a way, what Jesus is saying is like, I, okay, I need you to trust me. This is more than you can understand right now. But if you eat my body and my blood, and he's speaking very sacramentally right now, what we will do in just a few minutes coming to the table, you will recognize God. You'll be renewed in your connection to him. And you will know God, and you will live in a dynamic life force power that is eternal. I think the other thing that he's saying is that one of the reasons we can't grasp God communicating to us in the flesh is that we know that there's something wrong with our flesh. It's sin-riddled. It's actually horrifying sometimes when we really come to grips with it. And that's part of what he's saying I want to do in this transformative work of eating my holiness for your sinfulness. I've been speaking a lot in words that sound like abstractions, and I don't know how to do it. That's why John speaks so poetically. But I think that the answer to it is not to understand all the things that I'm saying exactly, but to enter into this way of receiving the sacrament of Jesus' body and blood, and to let him and his love do the work in your soul. Well, Jesus directly addresses this. Well, I could say maybe it's a little bit um, not so apparent to us. He says, no one has ever seen God. And he's speaking to Jewish mysticism, this idea that we could actually see God through some kind of spiritual act, through some kind of disembodied act. Like by, by having secret knowledge, maybe, if we could be initiated into some kind of mysterious religious way of connecting with God, we could actually see him. And he's saying, no one's seen God, only the Son has seen God. But what he is saying to you is that you can know the Father if you've seen me, who has seen God. So if you communicate with Jesus, the full communication of God the Father's love, expressed completely in his body and his blood especially, to cover for our sins, then we have a real encounter with God. But it's through the means of him who became flesh to dwell among us. It's through the means of him who gave his body and his blood so that we could, through him, be renewed in this incredible divine encounter, which is life-giving. 
his flesh given for a sacrifice, real bread, real energy. And what we know now, too, is that this is, this, is, this is a love that covers not just our sin, it's a victorious, powerful reality because we're partaking of his body and blood, which is now ascended in the heavens. It's a powerful reality so that in our lives, which get overcome by sin, we can actually live into a victory that conquers sin. We can trust him in a a kind of like, when I die, yeah, I think I'll go to heaven way. But do you trust him for the fact that his resurrection life through his body and blood can enable you to not sin? That through a communication of power that he gives you through his life source, you could actually begin to become like Jesus? Do you trust him for that? Will you receive his body and his blood in such a way that he fortifies you at that level? I mean, this is what it means to receive the one who did obey every word of the Father is we actually begin to partake of a life that can, can live by his words and actually finds those words life-giving. By the way, it's very physical. We're actually going to take this bread and this wine, which he says, by this you remember me, which is to say, you make effective now everything my body and blood was poured out to do on the cross. You make effective now as you receive it here. And by eating it, I mean actually putting in your mouth and chewing it up and then swallowing it. He uses a very graphic language. The the word that he uses for chew, it's kind of like masticate the way animals do. He's trying to say it's very physical, even though it's very divine. And this is very paradoxical. But he's trying to say your life matters, your body matters, and your condition right now matters, and the possibility that you could live in love and enjoy and obedience matters to me. I think there's two ways you can receive the sacraments. You can think, okay, it's kind of cool. It gives me kind of sentimental feelings. But then you just return home. You have to remember the first time that the disciples actually received the Lord's Supper, every single one of them just returned to their own homes. They didn't remain in the homemaking reality that Jesus is doing through his body and blood. And he's saying, if you eat my body and blood, a little bit later in this passage, if you actually eat my body and drink my blood, you're homemaking with me. And I'm homemaking with you. You're abiding in me and I'm abiding in you. But do we remain in that home? And do we remain under his household rule? Do we receive it in faith in such a way that we we allow the love of God, the wooing and drawing love of God to bring us right into the center of that home life. Are we humble enough to let him do that? Are our sins keeping us from receiving this gift of grace? And he would just say, come to me, receive, eat and drink new and unending life. There's a section in, later in the gospel where Jesus has communed the disciples and it's in the same context as the Last Supper and John asks who it is that's going to betray him. And, and Jesus gives John a morsel of bread. I'm sorry, Judas, a morsel of bread and he dips it. 
And then Jesus says the strangest thing, now is the Son of Man glorified because his betrayer has taken a morsel of bread. But what struck me as I thought about it in the context of how we receive communion is that the only way Judas could have done that, the only way Judas could have betrayed Jesus at that point is if he divided everything that he knew about life from Jesus. And he started to think of Jesus as somebody that he could oppose, not as the divine revelation of God. And so what I see in this morsel is like, He's, he's split off his participation in the communion from the loaf of the whole communion of the body of Christ. He's taken a little bit of it. Like, I kind of like Jesus as long as he was just a moral teacher. But as soon as he started to talk about being God in the flesh and dying for my sins, no way. What are the ways in which we morsalize our response to God? Um, there's this story that um, Augustine tells about what does it actually mean to commune with God? Well, it, you're, you're taken into the life of the divine communication, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's talking in the ways that I've been talking. But he also says that it's, it's like all of us are ground wheat. We have to die to ourselves. We have to die to that thing in us that would make us morsalize our life away from God. We have to die to that. We have to be like the same, you know, wheat that goes into the ground and dies like Jesus. And then we have to be baptized into his life. We have to be moistened in that. So we literally baptize in water and in the spirit. And we, then we come alive. But then the, the fires of the Spirit turn us into bread, and it's a loaf of bread, and there's, there's one body, there's one communion, there's one Spirit, there's one Father, there's one Jesus, there's one Lord who's Lord of all. And you're now part of this incredible reality so that no matter what happens in life, God's communing with you. No matter what happens in life, he's with you. You don't have to be divided from him in any way. Jesus wants to heal all the divisions. He wants to let us participate in this reality, this communion that doesn't have to end. I feel like I should just pray with us for a while. Lord, um, I thank you for John. I thank you that his gospel, he took so long to write it, Lord, because he was trying to convey such profound things that are difficult to say. And we know that from John's um, story that he did it because he was an apostle of love. And he rocked his way to, into the grave back and forth saying, love the Lord, and that's enough. And be loved by him, and that's enough. And so, Lord, I thank you that fundamentally you, you are communicating a love that can overcome all the sins that divide us away from you that can make us one with you. Lord, this is um, beyond my ability to express the words, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring these things to life today as we receive your body and your blood. Lord, I pray that we would participate in the blood that covers a multitude of sins, 
that tears down walls of judgment and bitter sin and bitterness. I pray, Lord, that we receive your body, your life power, even the power of your resurrection life, Lord Jesus. I pray that there be nothing in us that would not hunger and thirst for this complete meal, which makes of us a new people and renews in us the life that doesn't end. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, for your glory. And we pray it so that we would shine with the same love towards many others who don't yet know that they're loved by you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.